Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi everyone, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. On today's episode of the show, we are going to be focusing on Tibetans living in exile from their homeland. Now, I think for many people, Tibetans remain kind of an abstraction. I'm sure many of you listening to this or watching this right now have interacted with Tibetans in the past, but for too many people here in the United States around the world, Tibetans seem only like monks or holy people, or they might just be seen as victims of human rights abuses in China by the Chinese government. Now, the reality is Tibetans, of course, like all people, have full lives, lives full of hopes and dreams, disappointment and joy. And there's an outstanding new book that highlights the stories of Tibetans living in exile. And it's called Far From the Rooftop of the World, Travels Among Tibetan Refugees on Four Continents. Now, this book just came out recently, and it's an excellent book because, like I said, it follows Tibetans over four different continents, but it also traces their lives over a long period of time, about 15 years, in fact. So it tells the stories of these Tibetan subjects, and it really brings them to life as actual people. So I'm very excited that on today's show, we're going to get to speak to the author of this book in just a little while. But first, earlier today, I had the chance to sit down with my boss, ICT President Tencho Gatso, for an update on what's going on in the world of Tibet advocacy. So, let's take a listen to that conversation now. Tensho, Tashi how are you? Good, thanks Ashwin, I'm good. So we had a very exciting week last week here in Washington. We had the Sikyong of the Central Tibetan Administration here. The Sikyong is the president of the CTA who was elected democratically by Tibetans in exile. And he was here last week with a full schedule. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened last week? Yes, so Sikyong was here. I think this was his third trip to mm. Washington, D.C. And along with the Sikyong, uh, chairman of the board of um, International Campaign for Tibet, Mr. Richard Gere, was also here. So we had two busy uh, days. The primary um, goal was to reach out to uh, members of Congress, um, talk about what's happening in Tibet. And we have a bill legislation called Promoting a Resolution to the Tibet-China Conflict Act. So um, we wanted to uh, focus on that, both on the Senate side and on the uh, House side. We also met with uh, at the State Department with Undersecretary Azvazeya, who is also the Special Coordinator for Tibetan Affairs. So I would say altogether a very busy two days, but uh, very, very productive, and we were able to make good use of their time here. Very yeah. good meetings. Yeah, absolutely. And I know one of the highlights of the week was actually a special celebration that we had on Capitol Hill, where we had Sikyong there, we had some members of Congress, so I'll let you talk about, but we were celebrating the 16th anniversary of the Dalai Lama receiving the Congressional mm -hmm. Gold Medal, which is the highest civilian award in the United States. So that happened on October 17th, 2007. October 17th of this year, we had a special celebration on the Hill. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, thanks, Ashwin. Um, the uh, Sikyong's visit this time coincided with the anniversary, so we decided to take special advantage of that. And along with the Office of Tibet and the Capital Area Tibetan Community, 
um, we were able to put together an event and we were lucky uh, speaker Emerita Pelosi mm -hmm. accepted to come and speak and uh, she was also joined by con bipartisan uh, members mm -hmm. who were original co-sponsors yeah. uh, of the bill mm -hmm. and we had a really uh, wonderful warm yeah. um, gathering mm -hmm. on um, Capitol Hill mm -hmm. and um, it was also um, we our team Mm -hmm. We worked. Our team worked on it to put together yeah. a pamphlet and some yeah. photographs and images, mm -hmm. bringing some of that um, feeling from the original mm -hmm. day back. And I think um, yeah. in all the remarks that were made uh, on mm -hmm. that day, everybody reflected on um, how special it was yeah. and what it meant for everyone. And um, yeah, not many people remember this, but actually that was the first time a live event mm -hmm. happening on Capitol Hill with His Holiness, mm -hmm. the President of the yeah. United States and the Speaker mm -hmm. of the United States and all the leadership there mm -hmm. was broadcast live from yeah. DC mm -hmm. into Tibet by Vice Voice yeah. of America. Um, so it brought special mm -hmm. uh, meaning to be able to celebrate it again um, yeah. with all these people there and many of the staffers who worked on it were there uh, former congresswoman mm -hmm. Ileana Rostrod yeah. she was there yeah. so yeah it was a really wonderful event mm. it was great to have um, like you said some of the original sponsors mm. there which was incredible and it was just so much fun I think mm. we all had a really great time there but it also showed that Tibet still has bipartisan support on Capitol Hill there were Democrats there were Republicans there were a lot of current members of Congress mm. so it showed the cause is still very strong I know that you also have some more travels after we already had a busy week last week. I know you have some travels coming up. Uh, I believe you'll be going to Dharamsala soon. Is that correct? Yes, mm -hmm. I'm leaving for Dharamsala in a few days. Mm -hmm. It'll be um, the first time actually that um, we have all the heads of our offices. We have Kai Müller who heads mm -hmm. our um, Berlin office and Wong Gu Tethong who mm -hmm. heads our uh, Amsterdam and Brussels office and Puchun uh, Sirila, mm -hmm. who heads our research and monitoring unit. Mm -hmm. All four of us are going to Dharamsala. We'll have meetings with the Tibetan leadership there, and uh, we hope we have an audience with the Solness. So yeah. it will be yeah. a, a very special um, trip that we have ahead of us, and yeah. I look forward to mm -hmm. sharing that with everyone afterwards. How long mm -hmm. is the flight to, uh, to get to Dharamsala? First, you have to go to Delhi, right, and then I'm doing a straight flight this oh, time. Oh, really? So okay. I'm going straight to Darms uh, Delhi and then okay. straight to Dharamsala. No oh, stopping boy. anywhere. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. It cuts down a little bit, right? So, well, thank you very much, Tenso. And uh, yeah, we will check in with you again next month for the next talk. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Ashwin. Thanks a lot. My thanks again to Tenshala for taking part in that discussion with me. And now let's move on to the main part of today's episode. So as I mentioned, we're going to be speaking to the author of this book, Far From the Rooftop of the World. Now, the author is an award-winning journalist who was most recently with Bloomberg slash Lab, and she was previously a Financial Times correspondent in New York and India, where she lived for seven years. She's written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, NPR, and over 30 media outlets. She's won three awards from the United Nations Correspondents Association, four from the South Asian Journalists Association, and first place from the Association of Healthcare Journalists for an analysis about reducing deaths of children in India and Bangladesh. In 2023, she won the Asian American Journalists Association's Award for Political Reporting 
about protecting voting rights of immigrant voters. So I had a great conversation with her earlier this week. Her name is Amy Yi, and we were very delighted to have her on Tibet Talks. Let's hear my discussion with Amy now. Amy Yi, Tashi Delay, and welcome to Tibet Talks. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. We appreciate you doing it. I know you've been very busy. The book uh, just came out very recently, and uh, the book again is called Far From the Rooftop of the World. Uh, you were generous enough to share in a copy with me, and I really uh, enjoyed it. It's a very lovely book that we definitely encourage our readers to check out. So, Amy, this book uh, covers a lot of ground and uh, a lot of time as well. Can you tell us, just to begin with here, at the beginning of the book, can you tell us what happened in 2008 that inspired you to write about the lives of Tibetans in exile? Yes. Yeah, so in March 2008, I was a reporter for the Financial Times, the British newspaper, and I'd been based in India already for a couple of years. At that time, as you may remember, in March 2008, there were um, demonstrations uh, in Tibet that turned violent. So um, there was a lot of unrest. There was a lot of anxiety about what was happening. And it was actually the worst um, outbreak of unrest and violence in greater China since Tiananmen Square in 1989. So it was a big deal. And all the journalists uh, went up to Dharmasala um, in northern India, where the Dalai Lama lives in exile. It's the seat of the exile government. You know, as happens with news, we, we have a quick turnaround to react to things that are happening. So uh, the day before, I had no idea I was, I was going to go up there. I was actually in southern India, in Bangalore, which is quite far from Dharmasala. So I had to get up there very quickly and by the next morning. And it was a long journey to get there. And I was late to the press conference and literally running to it. And then there were no seats left. All the seats were taken by the journalists, and I was, I was, so I sat on the floor, and I was fairly close to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and I asked a question, and then at the end of the press conference, which was about two hours, when you know, we were talking about the severe, you know, crackdown by the Chinese government and the turmoil in Tibet, Dalai Lama, instead of leaving, he came over to me. He made a beeline towards me. And his face lit up and he said, oh, Chinese? And I am Chinese-American. I was born in the U.S. I'm ethnically Chinese. My parents are from Hong Kong. You know, I, I said to him, American? <laughs> but he was just really excited to, to meet someone, you, you know, ethnically Chinese. And so he said to me, came over to me, grabbed my cheeks and pinched them, you know, in the warm way that he has and said, um, China and Tibet, we must discuss, it's between us and you must tell them. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm trying, I will, you know, I have to write my articles. And so then he hugged me and it was a very long embrace. I'm not used to being in the story. I'm, you know, usually observing it as a reporter, but since all the photographers were there from Reuters and Associated Press and so on, that photo actually went out on the wires around the world and in newspapers around the world. So it was an unusual start to a reporting trip. <laughs> um, so that was the beginning. And so people have sometimes said to me, oh, so you wrote the book because the Dalai Lama told you to. And that 
that's not really the case. It's more that I became really interested, intrigued, fascinated with Dharmasala um, and the people who live there in exile, the Tibetans who live there in exile, and that it is a you know haven and a microcosm of Tibetan culture and identity um, transplanted in a new place. And I, I have been to Tibet as a backpacker years before, so I had seen the repression in, within Tibet and in the streets of Dharmasala for the, the you know days that I was there, Tibetans were out you know marching, protesting. They had you know the Tibetan flag, they had banners, they had um, pictures of the Dalai Lama, and they were demonstrating peacefully. Uh, candlelight vigils, you know, all kinds of activity. And you can't, you couldn't do that within Tibet. So we were seeing the consequences of, you know, people marching or demonstrating. People were literally getting shot and killed in Tibet for doing something similar. So just really um, intrigued with um, the place and the people. And then the more I started talking to Tibetans there, just became intrigued with issues of identity how identity is is preserved um, and retained, how it shifts and adapts to a new place. And anyone you know who uh, has moved homes or you know adopted homes or any anyone who's immigrated, you know these are all the, the interesting questions that come up or things to think about. So um, I've always been really intrigued with issues of identity as someone who's Asian American. So people who are moving between cultures or worlds or identities and balancing them and navigating them. That was really embodied in Tibetan culture in India and then beyond goes on to explore. Thank you for sharing that. So very uh, interesting story. That's kind of maybe sort of the genesis of this book. And now the book is out. So um, if someone were to pick it up, you know, you mentioned that that story about meaning is holiness, but there's so much more that's covered in this book. What if someone were to pick up the book, what would they find inside? Yeah, so there are three uh, main Tibetans who I followed over a long time because the book took a long time to get published. And so I had a lot of time to keep uh, checking in with them. So it's very focused on their stories. The three main people are Tibetans who were born in India and then came to India. I'm sorry, they were born in Tibet and came to India for various reasons. Two of them were definitely refugees. I mean, I suppose they were all they were all refugees, and then you know, some of them left for for more urgent reasons. So uh, very focused on on their stories and also the experience of what it was like to um, live in Dharmasala and be in that you know, haven of Tibetan culture and identity during a tumultuous time, which was 2008, 2009. And then also the book expands because I kept following the three main people. And one of them was a former political prisoner, I mean, meaning he he had been imprisoned when he was like 14 or 15, but accidentally because he was a bystander near a demonstration and got swept up in, in things. He ended up getting asylum in Australia. So I got to visit him in Australia and there are three chapters of the book set there. And then there's a couple who fled Tibet in the winter of 2008, specifically because of consequences from 
they had helped photocopy some flyers for a friend in, in March 2008, and that friend was arrested. So they had to flee quite quickly and come to India. So they ended up getting asylum in Belgium. So there's one chapter there. And then the third person is, um, when I met him, he was a monk and um, had been a monk, you know, since he was, you know, young child, basically, and spent, you know, quite a bit of time with him, really got to know know him as a person, like he, he really loves basketball. And um, <laughs> he, uh, when I met him, he was, he had a job for the first time working at a veterinary clinic. So there's a lot about his um, transition into you know, more secular life. And then unexpectedly, this is a spoiler. Um, so he ended up actually immigrating to New York and he's no longer a monk. So it just, uh, you know, there's a trajectory of, of what happened to them. But also the book, it is a travel book because it does take does take place on four continents. And it is about the experience of being with Tibetans in different settings. I mean, a lot of the book is set in Dharmasala, but there's also one chapter that's in a Buddhist holy city called Sarna. His Holiness was giving a teaching there. Um, and then there's another chapter that's set in southern India at the largest Tibetan settlement in India called Bailakupe. So it's also a travel book. The genre, it's, it's narrative nonfiction. It's also literary journalism and it's, it's travel log. That's uh, one thing I really like about the book is the fact that it uh, shows sort of the diaspora of Tibetan exiles, how they live in different places now. Not just everyone is in India now, even though the majority still are. And uh, it also traces these people's lives over a long period of time, which is really valuable to see. Uh, Amy, is there a section from the book that you could share with us to kind of give our audience a little bit more of an understanding of uh, what's in the book? So although there is a lot of, um, you know, many of the stories you hear about why Tibetans left, there is sadness. And then there's definitely tragedy in terms of um, especially what was going on in Tibet in 2008, 2009 with the repression. Um, the book is also, or the people I met, were really inspiring. And so it's not, it's not, uh, I don't think the book is depressing. It's actually quite inspiring what Tibetans have, have done and how they lived their lives. So, so one um, passage, this takes place in March, 2009. It was the 50th anniversary of the Tibetan exile, which was a really significant time. And um, in the morning, there was a big ceremony um, hosted by His Holiness and many speakers. And then in the afternoon, I um, just came across the prime minister of the exile government at the time, um, Samdong Rinpoche, who um, I believe was in his 70s. Um, he is a monk. And I got to speak with him quite spontaneously. And I, I asked him. I mean, first of all, he was he he was showing anxiety and stress about the situation inside Tibet because there was a big communication blackout and it was unclear what was happening. There was also a severe clampdown. You know, he was he was definitely very concerned about what was happening in, within Tibet. But when I asked him what the 50th anniversary of the exile meant to him, I'll, I'll read from this part. 
So Samdal Rinpoche seemed to visibly relax when I asked what the 50th anniversary of, of Tibetan exile meant to him. He sat up a little straighter and for a moment his fatigue vanished. In the exhibition at the Tibet Museum, there are photos of Samdong Rinpoche from over the decades. One showed him as a much younger man, his face not yet gaunt and strained. Some of that vitality returned for a moment. He said, my memories of my life spent in Tibet are more clear than memories of yesterday, he declared nostalgically. Samdong Rinpoche looked in the distance and smiled. I remember the colors and shapes of trees in our monastery and the friends we debated with. The last 50 years have seen tremendous change, unbelievable change. So I'm satisfied in many ways. The last 50 years have been the darkest in our history, but Tibetan culture has spread to all corners of the world. His holiness is respected all over the world. That is a great achievement. We have modern education and at the same time, traditional education. We must be satisfied. And then he said, in spite of his weariness, Samdong Rinpoche was hopeful about the future. He said, the rigidness of Chinese leadership will also change. I hope the next leadership will be more open and transparent. Sooner or later, China will have to be more democratic. Then the Tibet issue will be properly resolved. We have not wasted the past 50 years. We have to use them properly. Yeah, so that was a really, um, you know, this just came from a spontaneous conversation we had. And I, I thought it just said so much um, about, you know, even though, it was a grave time at the 50th anniversary, but, but he also acknowledged what's true that Tibetan culture has spread to all corners of the world and His Holiness is you know, one of the most well-known and respected leaders in the world. So these are, these are you know, tremendous accomplishments. So as I mentioned, uh, one of the things I really love about the book is how much you humanize these Tibetans and show them as people and show their lives. And uh, I think for many people in the West, especially Tibetans, still remain in extraction. They're either these mystical monks, or you might think of them as just victims of human rights abuses. And certainly, you know, there there are elements of truth in all of that. But um, at the same time, like I said, your book really shows them as actual individuals, actual people, a community. Um, what do you want people to know about Tibetans in exile? Well, they are you know, they're human. And like you said, there's often this romanticization of them, or um, as one of my peer reviewers said, that sometimes other narratives, they don't really paint um, Tibetans as contemporary people, but my book showed them as contemporary people, which I feel, uh, you know, that was, that was really uh, an honor. And so you can have someone who is you know, a monk and has been devoted to, you know, monastic study for his whole life, but he also loves basketball, he loves Kobe Bryant. You can have, um, let's say, you know, I talked to another monk and he really loved this song by the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> it's actually called Where Is the Love? I, I looked it up again. And it's actually a very fitting song for these times. I don't have the lyrics in the book because I wasn't sure how to get in touch with the Black Eyed Peas to get the permission for the lyrics. But, but you know, we we talked about the lyrics to this song, and you know, I was helping him practice English, and we talked about the Black Eyed Peas. Um, I mean, he also showed me how to use Facebook. Like I wasn't even on Facebook at the time, and you know, this Tibetan monk introduced me to how Facebook worked in an internet cafe in Dharamsala. <laughs> yeah, and then in Australia, there's some uh, amazing scenes and moments where you have you can see how 
the transplantation of Tibetan culture in Australia, it's very much Tibetan, but it also starts to adopt some Australian flavors. Um, so, for example, there was a program to, to teach Tibetans to learn how to swim in Sydney, since the beach and the ocean is such a part of Australian culture. Probably has not been for Tibetans. So they, you know, it was like a water safety class. And also, you know, then you, then it's also, you know, helps integrate into that the culture of the beach and the ocean. You know, these cultures, um, Tibetan culture could be transplanted, but then it also adopts um, some of the flavor of um, where it starts to grow. Like, and we, we saw that also in Bailakupi in southern India, where one of the first scenes I saw when I um, entered Bailakupi uh, in an auto rickshaw was of a monk on a tractor in a cornfield, and he was wearing a trucker's hat. <laughs> and, you know, corn just, you know, was one of the crops that grew really well in that soil and climate. And I think it's a big part of the local economy. So Tibetans adapted in in adapt in all these different ways wherever they are yeah i think this uh i think this year is actually the 20th anniversary of that black eyed peace song if i'm remembering correctly so good timely reference <laughs> it was very much like a post 9 11 song if i remember correctly okay yeah <laughs> i didn't know that yeah um so you talked a little bit earlier about you know how his holiness approached you and he talked about um china and tibet and the relationship there and as you mentioned you are american of chinese descent and uh i think if i remember correctly in the book you were a little bit worried about you know tibetans perhaps holding a grudge or, or feeling distrustful of you just based on that but that really turned out not to be the case can you tell us a little bit more about that about kind of how they interacted with you as a person of chinese descent and also kind of their views toward um the chinese people in general yeah that is a big theme of the book, and it does tie into identity, you know, the themes of identity that I mentioned. And so I, when I went to Dharmasala, I didn't have any expectations, but people in, in terms of how I would be treated as being um, ethnically Chinese or Chinese American, but then people who, you know, like Westerners, when they heard that I was spending time in Dharmasala, like they would say, you must, you must have a hard time there, meaning Tibetans must be hostile towards you. In fact, that's a line in the first chapter of the book where there's a, a German woman who says that to me in Dharmasala. And I said, actually, it's the opposite. And Tibetans I met in India and in Australia, they were really welcoming to me and warm and you know, unexpectedly would reach out to me um, thinking that I was Chinese. So I might be walking you know, in the streets of Dharmasala, and then people would sh like call out to me, like Nihal, and I was like so surprised. And sometimes I felt like people were a little disappointed that I was not from China and was actually American. Um, and so, um, talk about forging good relations between Chinese people and Tibetan people talks about it often, and it's actually one of the agenda items of the exile government as well. So that outreach and the message from the top seems to have you know, been absorbed by Tibetan people. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book where I think the title is, um, it's, a, it's part of a quote that the Dalai Lama said, and he said something like, faith in the Chinese government is getting thinner and thinner, but my faith in Chinese people 
is still strong or something like that. It was it was quite surprising and sort of counter to what one might think. And I I this comes up all the time in the book because I will ask Tibetans like, so you're not afraid of me or you don't you know dislike Chinese people? And, and in the fast first chapter, Topton, who's the basketball loving monk, he says, no, we I you know I we don't hate Chinese people don't like the Chinese government. So being able to distinguish between, you know, the person and then the actions of a government, I mean, it's, I wish more people would do that. <laughs> and Tibetans seem to do that extremely well. So yeah, the, basically the, uh, the quote from the Dalai Lama, where he said, I still have faith in Chinese people. So I, I heard him say that many times. Yeah. So that, that, you know, was a, powerful message and Tibetans seem to really take that to heart. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think that is a really important message for people to keep in mind right now with all the different conflicts going on in the world that governments and people are not the same thing. And I actually have a similar experience to you where uh, a lot of Tibetans will come up to me and speak in Hindi or in Tamil or something, and then I'll have to explain that I don't actually speak any of those. But uh, so, you know, as I mentioned, over the course of writing this book and working on this book, you really got close to um, some of the people who are featured in the book and you spend a lot of time with Tibetan exiles. Um, and this is a you know 15 year journey to get this book to publication. What is this process of getting to know these Tibetans, reporting on them and, and working on this book? What has that kind of done for you personally or what effect has, has getting to know the Tibetan people and Tibetan culture had on you personally? Yeah, I thought that the welcome and openness that many people gave me was really remarkable. So I was just a talk the other day and some journalists were asking me about the unusual situations I was in, meaning like at some points I was not really a reporter anymore because I was now part of what was going on. And so, you know, one example of that is when Deki, who she, she's, she fled in uh, the winter of 2008. She asked me to help her try to get, um, she was swindled out of her pay after working at a call center in India. And she asked me to help her get the money back. And I was not expecting that, but I'm not going to say no. And so, so at the, you know, at some points in the book, I'm not so much a reporter anymore. I'm just a person. Um, maybe I'm a, like a traveler and just writing about what was happening, but, you know, I unexpectedly became a part of their story too. You know? So, so there's a whole chapter that's called money matters about what happened when I got enlisted to help Jackie get the money back from the, from the Indian call center manager and the lawyer he had. So I did not think that would happen, <laughs> for example. So I did sometimes become part of the story. So it's not typical journalistic story where you're at arm's length. And in the prologue, I believe I said something like, you know, I, I, my intention was to be like a fly in the wall, but sometimes I became a fly in the soup um, because that's just what the circumstances were. So in terms of, um, you know, someone also asked me, did it transform or change me? I, I don't know if I mean, obviously, over 15 years, everyone <laughs> evolves and changes, but but I think it just galvanized this concept of um, moving between worlds and identities that are fluid and shift. And in this very 
global world we have, that's the story and the situation for so many people. I think the the book and the stories in it are really relevant. Um, they're very universal. Um, and, you know, although we do have major refugee crises happening in Europe and in North America these days, I do think these themes are really universal and relevant to, to anyone who has, um, you know, these feelings of shifting um, between worlds. And I think it's just a really interesting read. <laughs> I definitely agree. And uh, I certainly agree on the point that uh, this is, I think, would be relevant to a lot of people who kind of feel like they have, you know, multiple identities or shifting between different cultures, different worlds. Uh, Amy, are there any final thoughts or anything else you'd kind of like to share with our audience before we wrap up here? I think just the the idea that there's a lot of there's a lot of inspiration. There are a lot of inspiring people and stories in the book the examples and stories of resilience are, are truly remarkable. And so while it was often, you know, a hard road to get this book published, it's really nothing compared to what people in the book have gone through. So, you know, it was, it was good to keep that in mind. And I think maybe I'll just um, end with a really short paragraph about the Tibetan, a young Tibetan man I met in India at a um, Buddhist holy teaching in Sarna, His, His Holiness was giving the teaching. This was just a, a casual conversation we were having. And he's a young Tibetan guy who was studying in the US at an American college. And he said, quote, any people who are devoid of land create their own small community wherever they go. That's the positive side of being a refugee. It's also beautiful. From one side, it's a terrible thing, Tibet fell. But every day, more and more people are getting into Tibetan Buddhism and everything Tibet. And you know, I just think, what an eloquent thing to say when you're just like chatting with someone um, offhand. And, you know, again, I think what, what he said says so much. One last question for you before we go. Where can people find the books? So the book is wherever books are sold. So that means um, independent bookstores and also the big um, players like the Amazons and Barnes and Noble. For people who are outside the U.S., um, it is available on Kindle as an ebook. And then I think Barnes and Noble, it's Nook or something like that. So yeah, look online for it and order it um, anywhere books are sold. Amy Yee, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Amy Yee for joining us for this discussion on Tibet Talks. As we mentioned again, the book is far from the rooftop of the world and it's available now. We'll include links on where you can purchase it in the show notes for this podcast episode and in the description of the video as well, so please make sure to check that out. Thank you again to all of you for joining us for this episode of Tibet Talks. We hope this was an informative and interesting discussion for you. We'll be back next month with another episode of the show, but until then, as we always say on Tibet Talks, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Thank you, and Tujiche. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.